even when there's somebody who feels very isolated, I think, you know, in small communities, there's always people willing to help too. Welcome to the 457 SEO, a place for stories, information, and observations about our Southeastern Ohio communities. I'm Allison Hunter. I'm Atish Baidya. I'm Susan Tebbin. And I'm Aaron Payne. In this episode, we welcome back our cultural reporter, Emily Votaw, who's going to talk to us about the next installment of a documentary series that WOUB has produced. This time, it's featuring Athens. Uh, But first, the Ohio Valley's opioid crisis has given rise to another health problem, transmission of needle-borne disease. When the Centers for Disease Control's researchers looked for the country's places most at risk for outbreaks of diseases such as HIV, they found them in Kentucky, Ohio, and West Virginia. A new CDC report identifies 40 HIV cases discovered last year in southern West Virginia, Authors conclude that the outbreak could have been worse if patients hadn't been identified quickly. Health officials say the stigma associated with HIV hinders monitoring and treatment and adds to the risk of widespread outbreaks. Reporter Roxy Todd of West Virginia Public Broadcasting visited with some people who live in rural areas and are living with the disease and dealing with its stigma. It's the first story in a series from the Ohio Valley Resource, HIV in the Age of Opioids. Carl was in his senior year at Concord University in Mercer County, West Virginia, when he had some routine blood work done during a hospital admission. That's how he learned. They found out that uh, I was infected with HIV. He thinks he contracted the disease from a same-sex partner. Even though he used protection, he says his partner was careless one time. He says it's been a struggle telling people he has HIV because of the stigma against people with the disease. We're using his first name only because Carl still hasn't told everyone in his family. I have uh, two people out of my entire family that know. Even among some doctors, Carl says, he encounters homophobia. He recalls an early visit to a doctor in nearby Beckley. She, uh, in so many words, said, well, if I were you, I wouldn't have done the actions to get this. And that that set me back. That sent me spiraling that a medical professional that deals with these infections would be so crass to somebody that was so mentally fragile anyway, because I just uh, got that diagnosis. Carl stopped taking his medication for a few days. He says he almost gave up. Then he contacted the Ryan White program at Charleston Area Medical Center, where he now makes the two-hour round-trip drive for checkups. The stigma against people with HIV and AIDS can have a huge impact in rural communities. It affects what treatment options are available and makes it difficult for health officials to respond quickly to a possible outbreak. Tanya Basta, who chairs the Health Sciences College at Ohio University, has done research on the effects of stigma in rural Appalachia. There are providers who, in rural areas, unfortunately are still stigmatizing against their patients and West Virginia does not have a high number of people with HIV or AIDS, but researchers like Basta worry there could be undiagnosed cases, especially in the rural areas of the state. Testing is an issue, and I'm not saying that stigma is any necessarily any higher in rural areas. It's just that because of the nature of living in small towns where everybody kind of knows everybody, word travels quickly. 
Few people living with HIV or AIDS in southern West Virginia are willing to tell their stories in public. Elena Imes is one of them. She has lived with the disease for 18 years. For many years before the disease progressed, Imes says she did not know she had been infected by her husband. She worries that there are many undiagnosed cases in her community. Part of the problem is the negativity of the disease itself and the fear and the stereotyping. If you got AIDS, you probably did something bad, Christianly bad. They don't want anybody to see them go take a test. Consequently, people don't go take the test. She's told her story to the media several times, but speaking out has caused some backlash. A few years ago, she experienced an incident where she worked at Walmart. A woman recognized her from a TV news story and knew that she had AIDS. I know you're you're from the TV. You're killing us all. The woman yelled this in the parking lot, drawing a crowd. She accused Imes of infecting people with HIV by touching things when she stocked the shelves. I'm sorry. I don't really like telling people because that hurts so bad. So embarrassed. And that woman really thought she was warning everybody. Imes lives in a small wooden house in Coal City in Raleigh County, where she runs a small animal rescue service. As we step through the front door, pink curtains and a thin layer of frayed plastic covers holes in her windows. When I visited, she wore five layers of clothes indoors to keep warm. She weighs less than 80 pounds. Her health is deteriorating, and she's struggling to get by. Financially, I'm in ruin. She doesn't work at Walmart anymore. That's partly because a few years ago, she lost her mode of transportation. One night, she tried to hitchhike to work and was raped. Her perpetrators were never caught. Now she worries that those who raped her are unintentionally spreading the disease. As I listened to her story and Carl's, I wondered, why do they stay where they are? I'm says one reason is because she wants to stay and help other people who have the disease. I would tell them that... The worst thing they can do is to keep it a secret. If, if you can toughen up, you need to share it. Be open about it. That's the problem. If more people were open, then the stigma wouldn't be there. Because she's been in the media telling her story, over the years, Imes has become almost a one-woman support system for people here who have HIV. That's something Carl says people need more of. The biggest fear that someone with this has this infection has is doing it alone. And that often causes you to become depressed because you are lonely. I asked him if he ever thinks about leaving home, moving to a bigger city. I would rather live here and put up a front than move somewhere and be myself. I know that sounds kind of odd, but I do, I do love this place. It is a beautiful place. Although he is worried that his friends and family will find out he has HIV after the story airs, Carl says it's worth the risk because he hopes telling his story might help someone decide to get tested for HIV. And joining us now is West Virginia Public Broadcasting's Roxy Todd. Uh, First of all, thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for inviting me. Uh, the, the first question I had for you relates to the CDC county-level vulnerability assessment that was done in, I believe, 2016. Um, can you kind of explain what that assessment was and what it was looking for? Yeah, so 
The CDC, when they noticed back in 2015 that there was an outbreak in Scott County, Indiana, which is a rural community, it hadn't seen a high number of HIV cases in the past. So it kind of caught them off guard. And they came in and researched the area, researched who had been infected, and also kind of crunched some statistics from the area. And they found that that county was high in poverty, had a high number of drug overdose deaths, and also had a high number of prescription pills that were coming to that area. And so they began looking and assessing that data and looked at the whole country. And they basically pinned down counties that had a similar risk, similar data, um, and a big majority of the areas that were comparable to Scott County were found in Appalachia. So places in southern West Virginia and eastern Kentucky and southwest Ohio, places that have high rates of poverty and are economically depressed, and or sorry, are economically distressed, but also have a high um, ha- are dealing with the opioid epidemic because that's kind of bringing on the surge of HIV risk. And, and from your reporting, you were able to see some of the response to to this particular report. How, how soon do you, in your estimate, did state public health leaders start to address this report? And what were some of the measures they took? I can say that from from what I know, the state Department of Health and Human Resources has been looking into harm reduction programs like needle exchanges more seriously and other types of preventative measures that may help stop an outbreak in the future. Of course, it's a slow moving process. And so, I mean, I will say that they're let the most recent study that came out to that the most recent study that came out from the CDC that looked at um, a smaller outbreak in southern West Virginia last year kind of made the case that because health officials were on the alert, they were able to come in and identify those cases of HIV uh, pretty quickly and kind of stop the spread. So it seems that maybe they were on the out they were on that lookout. Um, and if they'd let it go on a few more weeks or months without stepping in and investigating it, it may have turned into an outbreak like what we saw in Scott County, Indiana. Something in your story that was mentioned is is testing for HIV. And part of the the problem with stigma is individuals may not want to get tested uh, to be labeled with that disease. In focusing on rural areas, what is the the state of testing for HIV? Are, are there a lot of options? Are there not so many options? People can go to their health department, their local health department, and ask to be tested. But as you mentioned, and what some researchers have looked at is that in these small communities, people don't want to be known as the person coming in and asking for a test. Um, there are over-the-counter rapid response tests that people can ask for. They cost 40 bucks normally in most pharmacies. There are also harm reduction clinics at some health departments in Appalachia. They're not everywhere. They're not in every county. And they offer a range of, of things like needle exchanges, but they also do free HIV and hepatitis C testing. And that's kind of something that we've seen quite a few of those harm reduction clinics pop up in the last year here in West Virginia. 
However, they're still kind of controversial, even the ones that don't do needle exchanges. In some communities, even just bringing people in to do HIV testing, it, it, well, I don't want to say that's controversial, but I will say that the needle exchange, the needle exchanges have been somewhat controversial in some communities, even here in Charleston, West Virginia. Right. The the mayor of Charleston, West Virginia, is trying to take steps to get rid of the needle exchange program that is already um, that has already been enacted. So, um, as far going back to testing, you mentioned there are over the counter tests. Um, you talked to uh, Dr. Basta from Ohio University who did uh, a little bit of research or into the home uh, or over-the-counter tests. How, how do public health officials feel about those tests? I don't know. No one I have spoken to at any of the health departments or DHHR um, at, at the state level have mentioned that they're looking into st- to those rapid response tests or over-the-counter tests as one way to increase testing. Um, I've not heard that myself from any state officials. Hi, Roxy. Um, who runs the harm reduction clinics? Are they privately funded? Are they state or federally funded? And if there's a concern about, is, is there a concern that the funding could could dissipate and then create um, a, 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 a void? At this time, I think most of the harm reduction clinics are at local health departments, so they receive a little bit of funding. But most of the harm reduction clinics that I visited, like the one here in Charleston, they're actually volunteer run. So they have doctors from the local pharmacy school and the medical school volunteer their time. A lot of the equipment is actually donated by for-profit companies, pharmaceutical companies. And so there isn't a lot of funding at this time, but the I may be wrong that some of it's coming from the DHHR. But as far as I know, most of it's actually volunteer run. Um, but I have seen in the latest study out of West Virginia, the CDC study I mentioned earlier, they did identify, they said they were working to get 11 harm reduction clinics set up in southern West Virginia, and that they'd identified those communities that they wanted to put funding in for harm reduction. So that may be that may be changing in the future here in West Virginia. There may be more funding coming from the state level to fund things like that. And, and just, just for my own clarity, the harm reduction clinics are specifically for um, either needle-borne diseases or the, are there other um, other conditions that are being tested? It's like, so if, so if I if I walk into a harm reduction clinic, do people know I'm going because I think I might have HIV or Hep C or something, or could I just be going in to go to a clinic that happens to offer these other services? Right. I mean, I think if like the one I visited in Charleston, they would just see you go into the health department. It's really discreet. And then the harm reduction place is off to the side in a little room. Not everybody that comes in volunteers for HIV or hepatitis C tests. So you have to volunteer to have that. Um, And it is pretty discreet. It's done behind closed doors. So to answer your question, no, 
people wouldn't automatically see you and think they're going to get an HIV or hepatitis C test. In terms of um, the clinic's locations where people can get testing, is it mainly located um, either in the bigger cities or the county seat? So people who are in, what what's the the barrier for folks who are in really remote areas? Are they having to travel um, quite a distance to access some of these services if they so choose um, to, to get them? And, and is sort of that location or, or the travel time for some folks um, a challenge in order, f- in just in, in terms of access? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think most of the health departments are in county seats. And of course, in rural places, not, you know, sometimes the county seat can be 30 minute drive or more. And of course, with the stigma, I did speak with some people at the Charleston Health Department who said they, they had people coming in from two counties over because of the stigma issue. They were just kind of going to the next county over to avoid being seen. So that adds a lot of travel time onto it. But you're right. I think it is difficult for some people to get to the health department. You mentioned in your story that Elena is kind of a one-person team in trying to break down the stigma associated with uh, this disease. Um, Are there any other efforts going on that you know of, uh, any group efforts to address the stigma? I would have to say... As far as I know, there aren't. I've seen some brochures and educational materials in some of the bars um, that I think are specifically targeted to the LGBTQ community to encourage testing. I haven't seen a lot of that. Um, yeah, I think that I think that element is kind of missing in rural communities. I think that while HIV, I think that while Appalachia doesn't have a high prevalence of things like HIV, it's still it's still here and it's still possible to get HIV in a place like rural Appalachia. So it does seem to be a missing thing that people in the cities are exposed to, but people here don't seem to have as much awareness about the risk. Roxy, do you know in terms of raising awareness about the risk, um, given sort of the situation with the opioid epidemic and and using needles and just sort of the increased risk that um, sort of those behaviors um, bring with it, is there conversations happening either at the state health department level or more at the local health department level to to launch some sort of awareness campaigns or conversations about um, bloodborne diseases and the in, increased risk of those in, in conjunction with the opioid epidem- epidemic? Are, are health, public health officials talking about trying to talk more with the public about it? One thing I think I've heard is that state officials are looking at how can you help people that are using IV drugs find a way to get into treatment and at the same time also try to get people tested for HIV and hepatitis, that the two things really can't be separated. So I do think there's an interest in combining the efforts of getting people that are who are addicted into treatment and also 
getting people who may be at risk of having hepatitis C or HIV to get them tested and get them into care, that that more and more, I think, health officials are going to look at that together. So it feels like a more holistic approach or a, a, a broader scope approach. I mean, for Appalachia, I think they're linked. And yeah, as, as funding dollars have been have gone, you know, have declined, it only makes sense to try to combine the efforts and the resources to to tackle a, a number of things at the same time, I think. Roxy, after you met and talked with Miss Elena, what what went through your mind and how did Yeah, what 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 did you leave with? What were you thinking as you went home and you when you were quiet and before you started writing the story or maybe as you were listening back to um, her interview? Well, I mean, every reporter has um, these experiences, I think, where you go and meet somebody um, and you kind of are half reporting and half just being there as a human being. And a lot of the time I was there, I didn't even have my recorder on. Um, and, you know, she had a lot of things going on. She needed um, cleaning supplies and food. Um, and I just sort of was going through my head, like, am I am I doing her justice in helping by telling her story? At what point do I go back next week and help her put up better plastic on her windows and bring her some more food? Because honestly... I just had those thoughts. Um, and so as a reporter, sometimes you do have those experiences where you're um, just wondering how much do I just tell this story and how much do I put down the recorder <laughs> and start being, you know, start helping people. And that's just always a constant question in some circumstances. So I did have that um, thought of am I really helping her as much as I should? I thank you for amplifying her voice. Um, it's an important one, and it shows you how strong people can be in some of the hardest circumstances. And and never mind what life throws at you, but just what even your neighbors or people in the street are throwing at you verbally or you know otherwise. So I appreciate um, her courage and 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 your um, and your humanity in that. Well, thanks. And I think I'll just say, too, that even though she's had some experiences that haven't been great, she also has people that she um, says have got her through hard times, especially right across the street is a church, and there's church ladies, and she says they really helped her. So it's, it's not as if she's completely alone. Um, that, you know, even when there's somebody who feels very isolated, I think, you know, in small communities, there's always people willing to help, too. Yes, because and you saw that with uh, the both folks you talked to, that's why they wanted to stay, which says something about the love of home and of the area. This is uh, the first part in a series. Are you working on the other, the next Iter- uh, couple uh, stories on this, or is it, I'm not sure, is it working, is it a different reporter that's doing it, or are you doing the whole series? And if so, where, what's next? What are you looking at next? Yeah, it's a collaborative effort with Ohio Valley Resource and 
Um, I think we have a few ideas for the next stories. I think one of the reporters out of Kentucky is looking at some another outbreak in northern Kentucky is one thing she's going to look into, and maybe Aaron, too, in Ohio. <laughs> um, so we don't know. I'm doing one very focused story in West Virginia that looks at funding that's come from the CDC that's been reduced over 10 years. Um, and But that's not necessarily a part of this particular series. Is there anything else that you um, are hoping to explore in um, in a future story that you sort of uh, learned about or um, came upon in the reporting of this story? Well, one thing that I didn't get to tell too deeply in this story, but I think is definitely a story worth looking into is just how similar the stigma against people who have HIV and AIDS is to the stigma against people that are addicted to opioids that in the same way that that people, you know, in the 80s and 90s were kind of shunned or people automatically thought, oh, that person's they deserve the, I don't know, there's just a lot of stereotyping that happened in the 80s. And of course, as I found this report, there's still a lot of stereotyping and stigma that goes on for HIV, especially in, I think, rural places. But I think that same thing is happening with and has been happening for a while with the opioid epidemic. So I think as we look at addressing both of these issues, it's also important to remember that compassion and empathy are one of the things that the medical community sometimes um, can always do better at, I think, and, and helping people who feel like they're on the, the edges of society, feeling like they can be welcomed um, and not stereotyped when they come to get care. And I, I think most doctors are very compassionate, but I think as a society, we can always do better. And that's one thing that I did hear from the state officials, that they think as well-intentioned as we want to be to help fight the opioid epidemic, we still have a long way to go as a society for just treating people with compassion and not judging them. You know, I think that's just one of the missing elements in fighting the opioid epidemic is how can we fight this if we're still fighting about do they deserve it? Should we just let them die? I mean, those arguments go on so often. It's sad. All right. Uh, Roxy, do you have any final thoughts about this piece that you've reported on? Um, nope, I don't. I mean, I guess the only final thought is just, you know, from as a child from the 80s, and we heard about HIV so much in schools, it kind of made me think, wow, we really haven't heard much about HIV. It sort of has been portrayed as a disease that's gone away. And it very much has not gone away. It's still there. It's, it's very treatable. It's not a death sentence. So I just... I think we can all do a better job just thinking about the realities of HIV and hepatitis and treating people with compassion. Roxy Todd, she's a reporter with West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Her latest piece on the stigma associated with HIV is available on our website, woub.org, also on the Ohio Valley Resources website. Uh, Roxy, thank you for your time. 
when we heard about Roxy's story, we wanted to know how Southeastern Ohio compared in terms of bloodborne diseases and the fight against opioids. In 2016, Athens County saw 49 cases of HIV, and that amount has stayed relatively even over the last five years. But in the past five years, Athens County has seen a notable uptick in cases of hepatitis B and hepatitis C, which are both bloodborne and often needle-borne diseases. Aaron and I went to the Athens City County Health Department to talk with Health Commissioner Dr. James Gaskell, a pediatrician and administrator of the county's needle exchange program. That program allows those struggling with addiction to obtain clean needles to help prevent the spread of hep B and C and give them addiction services. All right, so if we could talk a little bit about the stats, we were talking about needle-borne diseases. Can you talk a little bit about what those the diseases that are most prevalent in Athens County would be? Yeah, well, we really talk about our bloodborne pathogens. And uh, the bloodborne pathogens that are common and often well known are HIV, uh, hepatitis C, and hepatitis B. Uh, actually, hepatitis C, uh, the incidence of hepatitis C is a marker for heroin usage in an area. And if the hepatitis C rates are very high in an area, that means that you probably have a population that's using heroin. Mm-hmm. And why is it um, specifically heroin use? Well, because heroin is injectable. Okay. The other opioids are by and large given orally. Oxycontin, Vicodin, Percocet are oral uh, opioid compounds, but heroin is an injectable compound. The other ones can be made injectable, but ordinarily are not used that way. Sometimes they're uh, sniffed and uh, they're applied in your, in your nose or your no- mucous membranes, but by and large they're oral agents. And heroin is an uh, intravenous agent that produces a very rapid high. As a matter of fact, it produces such a high that sometimes individuals overdose because it interferes with their respiratory center and they quit breathing. And the deaths that are due to uh, heroin injection are uh, respiratory deaths that can be easily reversed with a drug called Narcan that everybody's sort of familiar with today. Mm-hmm. Also called naloxone. Often the generic name is naloxone. Yeah. Um, so we've seen an uptick in Let's start with hepatitis C. What are the stats on, on that? Yes, uh, there is a, there's been considerable increase. Uh, as a matter of fact, if we go way back to 2009, we had only 27 cases of hepatitis C in Athens County. But by 2014, we had about 90 cases, and in 2015, there were 180 cases. In 2016, we had 150 cases, and I just received our data for 2017, and we have indeed uh, another 150 cases this year. Now, those are chronic cases of hepatitis C. Hepatitis C is a chronic disease, and we're uh, encouraged by the fact that we have no more cases this year than we had last year. So the cases that we have may represent the chronic cases that we had, and maybe, hopefully, our needle exchange program is doing some good. It might be helping the situation. And is there anything that you can directly link to why it went up so much in between those years? I think that probably uh, heroin usage is probably the culprit. What happens uh, when individuals uh, shoot heroin, they often share needles. And hepatitis C is a bloodborne pathogen that survives for a long time on needles. And... uh, they, uh, the heroin user often, uh, they exchange needles with their friends and colleagues and they, uh, those heroin, uh, those uh, 
individuals who are carrying hepatitis C then share their infection mm -hmm. as well as their needle, unfortunately. Okay. So the needle exchange program, uh, you started that when? We started that, actually, uh, we started that last February, and we went to HapCap in Gloucester. And uh, unfortunately, the law enforcement sheriff's uh, office isn't very far away from HapCap. And our uh, efforts uh, didn't uh, result in very many visits from our heroin addicts. We were seeing three or four or six people a day in our clinic over there and became aware that the heroin addicts were concerned about law enforcement being in the vicinity. We learned about that from talking to Health Recovery Services uh, addiction counselors. So we moved here in actually in uh, June. And within a short period of time, we were seeing 25 to 30 people a day. So we have our needle exchange program on Wednesdays from 1 to 4, and we see uh, 25 to 30 people every day who exchange their needles, and we give them clean needles. Hmm. And hopefully that'll decrease our incidence of hepatitis C. So we were encouraged. Uh, it may be that the 150 people uh, that are reported to have hepatitis C this year in, in 2017 is the same group of people that had hepatitis C last year because hepatitis C is a chronic infection of your liver. And ultimately, uh, after 20 years of living with hepatitis C, about 25% of people develop cirrhosis uh, or scarring of their liver. And many of those people will need a liver transplant for survival. Now, fortunately, we have some antiviral agents that can treat hepatitis C. They're very expensive, however. The treatment costs anywhere from 80 to $150,000 for treatment. So there is treatment. Uh, we have antiviral agents that treat hepatitis C uh, today, but hepatitis C often results in uh, liver failure and cirrhosis. So um, we're encouraged that our numbers are the same as last year, and maybe those number re numbers represent the same people mm -hmm. that we were seeing. And um, to play devil's advocate a little bit, a lot of people argue well, if you're just giving them new needles, it's not helping the problem. It's just allowing them to have a free way of doing it. What's your argument to that? Well, we not only we not only see them to exchange their needles, but we talk to them about treatment, and we provide them with Narcan uh, to resuscitate their colleagues and friends. We provide uh, hepatitis A and hepatitis B vaccine. There is no vaccine for hepatitis C, but most importantly, we get to know them. We bring them off the streets. Uh, they are a secretive uh, group who are um, sometimes uh, embarrassed by being addicts. They're not happy to be addicts. They wish they weren't addicts. And the problem with uh, opioid addiction is that uh, it's not a, a failure of character. It's a brain disease. Once they are hooked on the uh, opioid, they have great cravings that are very difficult to resist. And so we do get to see them and talk to them about addiction counseling. And as a matter of fact, Health Recovery Services supplies us with an addiction coach, somebody who they can talk to who will tell them what it's like to go through uh, therapy, what addiction counseling is like, what medications they use 
for therapy. There's such a thing as medication-assisted therapy that helps uh, treat uh, opioid addiction. And uh, we have an opportunity to get them into therapy. And I think the more people we get into therapy, uh, the more likely we are to uh, ultimately uh, defeat this uh, very difficult uh, to defeat uh, problem. Um, we think that the more people that uh, recover from addiction, uh, they can be uh, advocates for those people in addiction. They can help treat them. They can be in our recovery houses. They can talk to them. So the more more people we have uh, who have who are recovered addicts, if you will, the more. Um, um, the more likely we are to finally uh, begin to make inroads in the opioid epidemic. I don't think we've reached a tipping point yet. Every year in Ohio, our numbers go up. Uh, we had numbers like, uh, uh, wasn't that long ago, that we had numbers like about uh, uh, 2,000 deaths. Uh, 2,500 deaths in 214, 3,000 deaths in 215, 4,100 deaths in 216, and 217 we have even more. So uh, the numbers continue to go up. Uh, about 14 Ohioans die daily from opioid overdose. So we're not at the tipping point yet. Uh, and the nation is not at a tipping point yet. We have more people in the nation die from opioid overdoses yearly than die from uh, automobile accidents, suicides, and uh, people have, who have falls. So it's a terrible problem. And is South, Southeast Ohio particularly susceptible to this? Well, in your opinion? yes, Southeast Ohio is very vulnerable. And uh, actually the counties surrounding us have uh, more deaths per 100,000 people than we do. Um, our average death rate from opioid overdose over the last 10 years is about 10 a year. Last year we only had six. We like to think that was due to availability of Narcan, but perhaps not. Perhaps it was a fluke. And perhaps we'll find last year, let next year our numbers be up. But we're hopeful that we're seeing a little decline here in southeast, in Athens County. Now, southeastern Ohio still has certainly Mm -hmm. uh, a serious uh, opioid problem. We still do in Athens County, but our numbers are down a little bit. And why do you think Southeast Ohio has such a problem with the opioids? Well, it's complicated, but part of it is poverty. Uh, living in poverty is uh, depressing. And this is uh, relief from that depression. Uh, opioids cause a high and you're no longer depressed. And uh, you use it a few times, and then the next thing you know, you have cravings. And it's hard to overcome those cravings. And some of the addicts, I think, just take heroin to avoid getting sick. Because when they don't have heroin, they get sick. When they're seriously addicted, they get sick when they withdraw. So I think some of them take it not to get high because they increase their tolerance as time goes on. And uh, it, Perhaps it's difficult to, for them to get high. I suppose that's the reason they are pleased when they have fentanyl-laced heroin. But uh, I think they take their heroin, some, some of them take it just to avoid getting sick.
you have to take it every day to be well. So what's the difference as far as um, for the needle exchange, as far as for how you deal with it between Hep B and Hep C? Well, you know, Hep B is preventable. Okay. And I think that's part of the reason we don't see as many cases of Hep B. Uh, actually, uh, babies get hep hepatitis B uh, immunization at birth, and that's been going on for quite some time now. And uh, actually, if you're a school teacher, or certainly if you're a nurse or a physician, in many occupations, uh, it's required to have hepatitis B immunizations. So hepatitis B is preventable. We don't see as many cases of hepatitis B as we do C. We have no immunization for, he for hepatitis C. Is there any hope of one becoming available? Well, I haven't, I haven't seen any data in that regard. The pharmaceutical industry is producing now uh, many uh, cancer drugs and many mental health drugs are not producing as, uh, as many uh, vaccines and uh, they're not producing uh, as many antibiotics as they once were. So as the baby booners uh, arrive at old age, they recognize that the populace is, uh, there are many baby boomers uh, alive today getting cancer and they're producing cancer. So it's sort of a supply and demand supply and discussion. Demand. That's okay. what the pharmaceutical industry recognizes. Mm -hmm. um, but the hepatitis B, in terms of this, you think is coming from the needle usage as well? Yeah, I think so. But hepatitis B is also sexually transmitted. Okay. Hepatitis C is a little bit sexually transmitted, but not, uh, not as much so. Uh, hepatitis B is uh, transmitted by blood and by sex. Hepatitis C, mostly by blood. How many have we had? Have we seen an uptick or a downturn? In hepatitis B? C in B? Mm -hmm. Well, we were going along with about maybe 15 or 20 cases of hepatitis B for the longest time, but then in the year uh, 2014, we had uh, 28 cases. No, I take it back. In the year 2015, we had 28 cases of hepatitis B. And in 16, we had 48 cases of Hep B. So I think that probably represents uh, dirty needles, hmm. uh, people using dirty needles, because it followed the hepatitis C increase around that same time. Gotcha. And do we have 17 numbers yet? Uh, yeah, I, I do have some 17 numbers uh, for a C and for a B. Uh, we just actually got them today. Oh. Uh, I told you, I think the C numbers are 150, same as last year, mm -hmm. and the B numbers are 39. And so as far as, uh, you told me HIV cases are, are relatively few and far between? Yeah, compared to the other cases, but HIV certainly is a blood-borne pathogen sure. and well recognized as a sex-borne pathogen. And I have some numbers on uh, HIV. They're a little harder to yet because they're not reported to our system. Actually, they're reported to the state. I can tell you that there were 45 cases of HIV in 212, 45 in 213, 47 in 14, 50 in 15, and 49 in 16. I don't have this year's count yet. But HIV is reported to the state, is not reported to the county system. I think that probably uh, most of our HIV is sex-borne. HIV. 
because it, it's sort of a stable number, it hasn't moved very much. As far as the future of um, the needle exchange, as far as trying to get these numbers down, what do you think is the best way for Southeast Ohio to look at this and look at the opioid addiction and, and try to get a handle on it? Well, uh, actually, uh, there are uh, two uh, coalitions uh, that meet and talk about the opioid epidemic and strategize regarding what we can do f about it. Uh, the uh, coalitions, uh, one of them is uh, associated with the university and the other is associated with the 317 board. Mm -hmm. And um, the university has been working on education, of course, including education for young people. When you uh, try to change cultures, and we really have an opioid culture here, you uh, need to educate your kids. And you need programs for kindergarten through 12th grade. Uh, that deal with uh, opioids and uh, talk to the children about opioids. Mm -hmm. So uh, the uh, University uh, uh, Opioid Coalition has been dealing with that. They have actually several committees. The 317 board is, uh, uh, is also interested in education, of course, but is strategizing uh, other ways to try to deal with uh, opioid crisis. They've been very supportive with our uh, Narcan uh, program and Ava have been helpful with the needle exchange program too. Yeah. Um, and as far as uh, we were actually just listening to a hearing in, at the State House about uh, this situation and somebody mentioned uh, how to deal with children whose parents are addicted to this and how that's a completely different education. How do you, how do you think that should be dealt with? Because we do have in, that here. Indeed, uh, um, we don't have enough foster homes for those kids. That's that's a serious problem, and uh, I think that we're going to have to have some creative education for those kids. And I think that actually uh, our local children's services agency is, uh, you know, tackling that problem. Personally, I'm. I, I don't know what kind of education they're going to need, but they're going to need a, a different, probably, approach uh, than the general student is not exposed. But with the uh, epidemic uh, in, in southeastern Ohio, there are so many kids that are exposed today. Not only are they exposed at home, they're exposed in the, out in the community. Um, other than the needle exchange program, do you have any advice for the community on how we stop the spread of these diseases, let alone keep them from happening? I think programs that educate children, we're going to try to change the culture here. I think that we have to deal with the addicted community sort of one patient at a time. But the more we get clear of uh, opioids, the more people who uh, resolve their uh, opioid addiction, the more people we have who will help us uh, influence other addicts. Uh, so I think we're going to have to deal with the current addicted population sort of one patient at a time. Mm -hmm. And uh, then we're going to have to try to change the culture through education. And, and that seems to be the strategy right now. Um, I think that um, it's important that uh, we not be judgmental with the addicted population. Uh, many of them are embarrassed that they're addicts. 
uh, I think that it's important that we recognize it's a brain disease and that we treat it as a brain disease with counseling and with uh, medicated assisted therapy. I meant to ask actually, um, is there any statistics on uh, the success rate of the needle exchange program or, or of people turning their lives around and becoming well, those Well, you know, you, you get an awful lot of anecdotal information. Uh, and, and you hear stories, and, and, and the, there are success stories out there, but there's not a lot of data because needle exchange programs haven't been around very long. Mm -hmm. Cincinnati's has been around maybe that is the longest one in the state, and they had one of the reasons they started the needle exchange program, and they were seeing uh, a high incidence of subacute bacterial endocarditis, which is due to strep and staph, and that's a bacterial infection that uh, goes to your heart valves. And they had a high incidence of that, and one of the infectious disease people got very interested in why that was occurring and discovered it was occurring mostly in heroin addicts. So they uh, developed a needle exchange program to try to decrease the incidence of subacute bacterial endocarditis, and they were very successful at that. So that's some data that's out there. They were successful at reducing a bacterial infection that was often killing people. Uh, but the incidence of how many people we, uh, the, the data on how many people we get into uh, therapy, eh, we don't know yet. Um, we're not quite sure how, how that's going to work out. We're going to know more about it in the next year or two. Is the needle exchange program anonymous when you come Yes. In? Oh. Uh, they don't have to identify themselves by name. We take their initials only. Gotcha. And we get some other demographic data on them. Uh, you know, uh, we find, we, we try to find out whether they've ever overdosed and been rescued. Uh, we ask about whether they know if they're hepatitis C and B positive. So we get some other data and we find out if they're on any mental health drugs. Um, some of them are, have mental health issues, of course. So we do get some other demographics, but they're not identified by name. Part of the reason we're working on a story like this is because uh, we're seeing stories come out of uh, Kentucky and West Virginia where they've seen very recent spikes in HIV, Hep B, Hep C, but uh, from the data you gave us, it doesn't seem like that is happening here in Athens County. Um, so this is a two-part question. Uh, are there any neighboring counties in Southeast Ohio that are experience, experiencing any sort of recent spike? And if not, why do, you, why do you think Southeast Ohio is maybe left out of that? Well, as a matter of fact, I had a call from a reporter not very long ago uh, who inquired uh, why Athens County seemed to be spared uh, the large number of cases of uh, hepatitis C, etc. And we weren't exactly spared. We have our fair share. Uh, we do seem to be relatively spared regarding overdose deaths. We have uh, an average of uh, 10 a year, but we've been down uh, to six uh, most recently. I'm not sure if our uh, addicts are more careful or, uh, you know, they do use together and they talk about the problems of addiction together. I think our needle exchange program is well attended. Uh, mainly because of uh, word of mouth spreads, uh, spreads the information. So I don't really know why Athens County seems to have fewer addiction deaths and uh, 
maybe fewer maybe serious problems, although we have pretty serious problems with our hepatitis C rate, than our surrounding counties. You mentioned it earlier, but can you talk about how you got through to some of these uh, people with substance use disorders and broke through the barrier of stigma? I have a really good public health nurse who runs my needle exchange program, who's uh, warm, caring, friendly, non-judgmental, and treats them with respect. They're all treated with respect. And uh, I think it's due to her attitude and her disposition and the fact that she recognizes that this is a group of people who need help. And that's what our job is. Our job is to save lives and help people. And she recognizes that. And I think after we had a few people come in for the needle exchange, they spread the word that if you go to the health department, you'll be treated with respect and you'll be treated kindly. And they are there to help you. And I think they recognize that. So I think they've talked about how they're dealt with here at the health department. And I think that's allowed the program to grow. I think that's encouraged the program to go. I think it has a lot to do with a public health nurse who manages that program. Um, and her name is Dawn Douglas. You mentioned law enforcement and how HAPCAP being near law enforcement really didn't help the situation. Uh -huh. uh, can you speak at all to, he mentioned stigma, but the idea that this uh, substance is going to be more, uh, you're, something you're going to be charged with rather than them worrying about you being addicted to it. Well, you know, uh, Keller Blackburn has a program. If you've committed a crime, have been uh, brought in uh, to uh, be prosecuted for a crime as a part of a addiction problem, and often addicts uh, commit crimes, burglaries, etc., in order to support their habit. Keller will agree to not necessarily prosecute you if you'll get involved with his Vivitrol program which is a drug that blocks opioids' effects. Now, you have to withdraw from opioids before you can get Vivitrol, but he'll enroll you in a Vivitrol program, and so long as you get your shot of Vivitrol every month and show up for counseling, he won't prosecute you, which is a really good program. As far as the, the fight between it being something that it's illegal and you have to run from the police because mm -hmm. you have this addiction, yeah. and then wanting to fight it as an addiction. Right. Sheriff Tharp in Lucas County has a program that uh, if you uh, overdose on opioids and they are involved in your rescue with Narcan, they then call at that time and get you an appointment with uh, an addiction counselor and take you to the counseling. And then for your next appointment, they take you back. So they develop a relationship, the deputy sheriffs develop a relationship with the addict. And when the addict is tempted to use, they often call the sheriff's deputies who become their allies. That's a really good program. And our local sheriff has adopted the same program, except that there aren't very many overdoses here in Athens County that he needs to respond to. So he doesn't have to deal with nearly as many as they had to deal with in uh, Lucas County. The sheriffs now recognize, and law enforcement recognizes, that they can't handcuff their way out of the problem, that they have to sort of help treat the problem. You can't send all, everybody to prison who uh, has dealings with opioids. I think they try to uh, identify and, and uh, prosecute uh, those people who are uh, pushing the drugs and selling the drugs. I think they, they try to get, identify them. I think they let care less about the individual who happens to be a user. 
we're going to need to throw a lot of money at this problem. And I don't think we know for sure what works best yet. We're surmising that if we educate our young children that that will help. It would seem that that will help for some of them. And certainly treating uh, the addicted community certainly will help. And as we get more and more addicts who are treated, we can use them as therapists, if you will, at least as coaches. I think that'll help. I think, I think we need to continue to rescue people who have overdosed. Uh, you, you hear a lot of stories of individuals who overdose several times and finally, after three or four times, they uh, are able to uh, get therapy. Uh, I'm sure each episode is a scary episode for them. Uh, I think prevention and, and I think that uh, trying to uh, find other activities for them. They need jobs. They need to work. They need to improve their self-esteem. So we need to find things that we that are going to be helpful in improving their self-esteem because they're often depressed because they're not working. Not all of them are in that situation. They come from a variety of situations. But uh, certainly they don't want to be addicts. We know that. And they're embarrassed to be addicts. So uh, we need to recognize that and, 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 uh, and tackle those issues too. Tackle the sociological issues that are associated with addiction. Sometimes it's, uh, I'm sure that poor housing is associated with it. Uh, 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 nutritional uh, 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 problems. Uh, I'm sure all those things, uh, all those sociological things impact addiction. So we need to consider those issues too. Mm -hmm. That's why it's such a big problem. And that's the reason it's going to cost a lot of money to do it. Again, our thanks to Dr. James Gaskell of the Athens City County Health Department. When we come back, we're going to change gears and stick to the culture side of things and talk to our culture editor, Emily Vota. back and joining us now Emily Vota arts and culture editor welcome welcome hey hi Emily. Emily hello hello thank you for having me so it's been a while since we've talked to you what do you got going on well there's there's a lot of stuff uh, there's a lot of stuff going on but um, perhaps the biggest thing is uh, later this month WOUB will debut our town Athens nice. which is uh, it's the fifth our town documentary um, I spoke with Evan Shaw, who is the producer and director of Our Town Athens. Um, we talked about the history of the area and how he gathers information and what people can expect from the documentary, as well as just a lot about the general history of Athens. And then Athens is one of the first towns that is founded um, and was not called Athens originally. It was called Middletown. Oh, cool. Yeah, because it was the middle town between Marietta and Chillicothe which was eventually the first state capital. And uh, if you draw a map um, of the original Ohio Company purchase, uh, which was Rufus Putnam's or land organization, um, right in the middle of that purchase and right between Athens, or excuse me, between um, Marietta and Chillicothe is Athens, and the exact center is the base of Union Street and High Street, 
where those two intersect, right by Bromley Hall, wow. just down from Bromley. Yeah. So that's the exact geographic middle between um, on the old road, um, maybe a little different now, mm-hmm. but on that early trail. So then 17, that's 1797. They come here, uh, found Middletown. 1800, it is renamed Athens. And it's named Athens because these are early New England um, wealthy landowners and cultured, educated individuals. And they wanted to imprint their values and their culture on the landscape. So they come up with names like Athens and Athens County and Athens Township. And then they use these other Greek and Latin names for the rest of them. You have Troy Township and Lodi Township and Carthage Township. So that's their a reflection of their culture on the frontier is how we get these place names. Oh, that's um, so that's a very roundabout way of talking about how Athens originally gets started in this area and where the name comes from. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's fascinating. I, I, I was curious, like, how, how did you start your research? I mean, there's so much history to cover The good Athens. thing is my research, 99% of my research has already been done by other people. And so I, uh, I'm not a historian. I don't have a master's in history. You know, I'm a someone who takes the history that other historians have come up with over the years and have researched, and I put it together in a cohesive narrative, for lack of a less pretentious word, um, to kind of tell that story. And Athens and most of these cities in southeastern Ohio are very fortunate because they have a large group of people who have worked very hard over the years to preserve this history. Um, so I, the first thing I do is I start with the historical society or the local museums, and I start asking questions there. And I sit down with people, and we get coffee, and I say, just talk to me. Yeah. And I start writing things down and I go and, you know, meet up with little old ladies who make me coffee in their living rooms and I get cookies and sugar cubes for my coffee, not sugar oh, spoons, wow. sugar cubes, because that's just how they are. Nice. Yeah, we're not messing around. Um, so that's what a lot of my research is. It's I spend time in the library, but I like finding these stories that if they've already done the work for me. <laughs> you know, basically, yeah. there's no reason for me um, to duplicate a lot of that stuff. I will go back later and find um, supporting documents and things like that to add little bits and pieces. Yeah. Um, but so a lot of my research is done in personal interviews with people. And I spent about six months doing that. Uh, wow. Yeah, it's a, a process because there's so much. And it's, yeah. you know, to find out what I want to include and more importantly, what I'm going to leave out, which is the hard part. Um, and it's about six months of that. And then, um, I start interviews, and then from there, kind of piece it all together. Absolutely, yeah. I, I know, if, I, if I'm correct, uh, the, it sounds like the uh, Southeast Ohio History Center played a huge part in this particular documentary. Absolutely. Um, you know, this would not be possible. Every one of these, this is our fifth episode, mm-hmm. and every one I find, um, I call them gatekeepers, in a good term, that know everybody, and they can connect me with places. You know, in Jackson, it was uh, the Lillian Jones Museum, and Megan Malone down there, like, put me in touch with this guy's your expert about apples and this guy's your expert about salt and uh, Jessica Siders, Cyrus Moore and Tom O'Grady at the History Center um, they did a phenomenal job and I've, I've actually they're assistant producers at this point wow. yeah I went ahead Fantastic. and gave them that title because I can do that and uh, <laughs> you know because the amount of hours they've spent with me and uh, you know the last couple of weeks I've spent three or four days in the History Center in their collections oh, wow. going through with Jessica and Cyrus and just finding old photographs because it's one thing to show them digitally but it's a lot more fun to make a little set you know on a desk and yeah yeah, and shoot it and that kind of stuff and uh, so old you know um, documents or photographs and stuff like that and um, they've just been a tremendous resource so if anybody hasn't been you know yeah it's a great place to go learn about the history of Athens and their new building and it's not just Athens it's the entire southeastern Ohio what Mm -hmm. are some of the things that that you learned in uh, earlier episodes that uh, you feel like you really got to use in the most recent one here about Athens I think what I've learned it's more from a uh, I guess a 
my process has gotten a little bit more refined. And I've learned that it's okay to not include everything. Um, and that's the hardest part because I'm trying – these films start 2 million to 300,000 years ago. Wow, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, so I've got two million years of history to put in. And with that, I mean with the glacier coming down because I don't think you can really understand Southeast Ohio's history without learning why we are the way we are. And a lot of that absolutely. comes from the glacier and its meltwaters carving out our hills and valleys. Um, but then to f- squeeze all of that information in is difficult. I have 56 minutes and 46 seconds. I can't wow. go over that. So I have to fit two million years in that amount of time. And a lot of this in Athens, I have tried to focus more on characters Instead of trying to fit in every piece of minute historical reference, I really try to focus on people um, and people that audiences might respond to or, um, you know, can relate to. And yeah. so I think I've learned to uh, to kind of work on that a little bit. And I've learned that I can't fit everything in because <laughs> yeah. that's the hardest part. There are things there are pieces right now that are edited that I it kills me that won't be in it. For sure. But, you know, that's another documentary down the road. Yeah. Our town in Athens, too. There you go. Yeah. For sure. For sure. Yeah, I was curious if you would be comfortable sharing any of that because sure. I figured you probably developed a lot of those ideas probably. Yeah. You know, um, so some that are even in the film is um, in the, you know, the stories that I really enjoy the most. Um, the story of Margaret McGrainer, who was a, uh, a lady who lived in Athens with her husband, Ernest, on West Union Street in the 1940s. Um, she lived there longer, but her story takes place in the 1940s. And one day the U.S. has just entered uh, in World War II and Pearl Harbor's been bombed and she looks out her door and sees a bunch of trains coming through with boys going off to fight and she looks at her husband and says we really need to do something to help these kids out because they're just you know boys so they gather up a bunch of magazines that they have sitting around so she gets about 75 magazines from her house why she had 75 magazines I don't know but she did and so she goes down to the troop train and she starts handing out magazines next thing you know she realizes they really appreciated that and she starts gathering up magazines from all over Athens and then people start donating her magazines and the story gets picked up by the Athens Messenger and then it goes viral and it's a national story. She's on the cover of American Magazine. Oh wow. Yeah and by the time it's over she's upwards of 500,000 magazines she gives out. Wow. She Every single train that comes through Athens 14 to 15 a day she's down there. She gets invited to come to Hollywood to speak on a radio program and she refuses to go because she's going to miss a train. Oh, my gosh. But what's really cool is she includes a little letter, a little card with each magazine that I'm Mrs. Ernest McGrainer, because it was 1940, so you were Mrs. Ernest McGrainer, not Margaret. Um, And this is who I am. I hope you've enjoyed your time in Athens. We are known for our hospitality and charm. We're the home of Ohio University. Here's my address. And so she gets hundreds of letters back from soldiers. Wow. And so at the History Center, we went through her scrapbook and started reading some of those. And we find letters from people you know, men who are fighting in North Africa about how this magazine, this lady in Athens gave them, helped them get across the ocean. It's just wow. a cool story about one woman doing something incredible you know, at sure. that time, you know, and taking, um, you know, the, uh, you know, taking a chance on, on really stepping up at that moment. Um, so that's a cool story. Uh, there are so many others. Uh, there was a shootout at one point between the National Guard and the United States Army right in front of uh, Donkey oh, Coffee. For real? For real. Yeah, on West Washington Street. Uh, the, long story short, there was the very first um, joint maneuvers between the Army and the National Guard in 1904. They'd never worked together. They came to Athens um, to practice war games in the hills, basically. Oh, cool. And the Army and the National Guard didn't quite get along with each other oh. because they, the uh, Army thought the National Guard were just a bunch of part-timers. And the National Guard guys thought the Army guys were mercenaries and you know horrible people. Mm. Long story short, it boils over and there's a shootout. 
and a gentleman actually, one of the soldiers gets shot and killed. Wow. And on the streets of Athens. This is 1904. That's crazy. Yeah, so we talk about that. We talk about the Athens brick. I collect bricks because I'm an 84-year-old man at heart. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a, a large brick collection. Wow, uh, cool. Yeah. So we talk about that, and we talk about where the clay came from on North Hill, which is where the armory is now, and how that hill used to extend out 300 more feet. Oh, Yeah, wow. onto Court Street, and then they pushed it back eventually. Um, and then how the bricks were turned into the buildings that we have now. Um, the university is obviously included. Um, but this is the story of the city. It's not the story of the university. And mm. I want to make, I'm trying to make that as much as possible. The university has to be included, and we yeah. definitely focus on some highlights. But we also want to get out and talk about people uh, mm. in the city and, their, uh, you know, the every everyday Athens citizens. For sure. As well. Yeah. I mean, w- w- who were some of your other uh, major players other than the people at the Southeast Ohio <clears throat> History Center? So uh, Marjorie Stone, um, who uh, she, if you've been around Athens long enough, you know who Marjorie Stone is. She was she founded the Athens, uh, at that time, the Athens County Historical Society and Museum. Oh, cool. uh, and she is um, wonderful. She's the one who gave me coffee and cookies. And uh, she has written the book, Getting to Know Athens County. She's written books that are photograph books of Athens. Um, she is a walking treasure trove of information. And so I've spent a lot of time with her, just picking her brain um, and just hanging out with her and learning. And mm-hmm. I couldn't have done it without her either. She's been phenomenal. Um, Ada Adams, uh, who is very... Um, involved in the uh, African-American history in Southeastern Ohio. Um, And the research she's done there was instrumental in um, telling some of the stories of the African-American individuals and other individuals as well. Um, But she's been great to work with as well. Um, You know, she grew up in Nelsonville. Um, Her husband is who Adams Hall is named after. He was the first. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he was the first black graduate of of Ohio University's journalism school. Um, And so Ada's been fantastic, too. So those are a couple that's off the top of my head who... Um, Betty Hollow, who wrote uh, A History of Ohio University. She was a former professor here, and she wrote uh, a history book about the university. She was great, too. Um, and a cool thing about Athens is I would say almost two-thirds of my interviews are women. Oh, and this that's one, really interesting. It is, it is interesting. Yeah, and that's the first time that's happened, and I don't know why. And I didn't try to do that. I don't. Yeah. It's just one of those things. And uh, But, uh, yeah, about two-thirds, I would say, are women who are telling these stories, wow. which is cool. And a lot of the stories are about women. And women of color who have done amazing things, too. Wow, that's really, that's fascinating. Yeah, it is. It's pretty cool. So I've enjoyed that as well. How much did sort of the, the topic of, like, building preservation, history preservation come up? <clears throat> that's in, in... actually a very, it's, not to give too much away, but that's how the film ends. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, that's my entire last um, segment is going to be, I, I couldn't figure out where to stop. Like, when does history stop? Did it For stop, sure, yeah. yeah. Did it stop did 50 years ago? Line? Did it stop, ye- stop yesterday? Um, so I had to draw a line somewhere. And the... Um, the preservation of the asylum was a good place to start with that. And not just the asylum, but there are several buildings in Athens that are being preserved right now. Um, the Southeast Ohio History Center preserved the church there. Um, the Mount um, Zion Baptist Church Preservation oh, yeah. Society. I was able to interview um, uh, Ada Adams about that and Ron Luce, and it was in that building, and they're trying to preserve that. It's a gorgeous building. Um, you know, the dairy barn's been preserved from the yeah, ridges. Yeah, it really and, has been. And what I love about those organizations is Every building that's preserved doesn't have to be a museum. It doesn't need to be mothballed. The Dairy Barn's a perfect example of taking a building and reimagining what it can be. For sure. And uh, so I, I want this to, I want people to question when they walk out, what are these buildings that are important? You know, it's mm-hmm. a very, we have a very American perspective of, well, it's old, let's tear it down and build a new one. Yeah. I don't want to fly to Europe to go see an old building. For sure. When I have buildings that are approaching 200 years old here, and we've lost some very, amazing buildings here. You know, the Berry Hotel, which is where the Court Street Diner sits now, 
Um, that was built and operated by uh, Ed Berry, Edward Berry, and his wife Maddie, who also provided the land and the money for Mount Zion Preservation or Mount Zion Baptist Church. And he was an African American businessman who ran one of the nicest hotels anywhere. You know, people wrote all over the country about how they would go to the Berry Hotel, and it was a 90-room hotel and just exquisite wow. and gorgeous. And uh, it was one of the first hotels in the country to put Bibles in the room. Oh, interesting. Yeah, cause, and toiletries, because at that time, it, that was not a, uh, a common occurrence. Mm-hmm. But they, you know, felt very strongly about that. So they put Bibles in it. Wow. And they put little sewing kits and soap and shampoo. And then it eventually, he passes away, and it gets falls under new management and then it gets remodeled and it turns into a 1960s thing yeah. and yeah. then in 1974 it's torn down oh, and it's replaced with you know uh, an, another business now and it kills me because you look at these pictures and it's this gorgeous building mm-hmm. and now it's a parking lot yeah we can't let that keep happening um and so i hope people when they watch this film uh, i mentioned earlier i want them to fall in love with some characters and people i want them i think that these buildings are also characters in their own right. And I think preserving those, it makes us who we are. What do we have if we don't have our culture? You know, and what do we have if we don't have that link to the past of what people have done to get us where we are today? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so yeah, the historic preservation is something I'm very passionate about. And uh, I think there's just no reason to to tear a lot of these places down. And so I hope people come away with a different perspective on that, or at least, you know, a new perspective on it. I'm looking forward to watching this documentary. Evan does such a great job of giving you the history of the little towns and bigger cities in southeast Ohio. So it's neat. Of course, we live here or live around Athens, but but what do we really, really know? And Evan is, is good about digging deep. Yeah, for sure. He really does. Yeah. That's why he wins those awards. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I enjoy the trailer that he has put together for the documentary, which you can view at WOUB's YouTube page, WOUB PBS. Plug. It's the top one. It's right there. And there's some very fascinating characters that help get you excited for the documentary. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, I'm really excited to see it, too. Um, yeah, there. Uh, it'll be shown at... Uh, Templeton Blackburn Alumna Memorial Auditorium on Sunday, March 25th at 3 p.m. for free. That's right. And then the next day, um, it'll be a pledge program at 8 o'clock. And Evan's doing a live pledge thing, I think. Oh, nice. With Jessica Siders from the Southeast Ohio History Center. I think they're going to bring some artifacts in. So it should be cool. Neat. Neat. And shout out to Rusty Smith, who uh, does the voiceover. He does much of the voices. <laughs> so. All right. What else is going on? This is cool. spring. It's the infestation time. Oh, it the sure fest is. season. They want to say that. Infestation. It's totally what they should call it. They're totally. They should. Totally. Early next month, we have the Athens International Film and Video Festival, and that's April 9th through the 15th at the Athena Cinema. And um, I'll, have a, I'll have a big feature up on that about that event uh, at the end of the month here. Um, and then I'll have lots of day-by-day coverage on the event during the actual week of April 9th through 15th. Okay. Yeah, I hear they're doing a um, documentary on the Millfield Mine disaster, which I'm kind of interested to see. So. Oh, very so, cool. I didn't know that was being shown there, but I yeah, just I happened heard about to see that. that. Yeah. So, looking forward to it. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I'm I'm really excited because they're they'll have they have a couple of really great guests. I mean, all their guests are pretty impressive, but they have um, Lori Anderson will be so like wow, right? Really? That was my reaction too. Wow. I was like, how did they manage to do? That's great. <coughs> Look at the Southeast Ohio, the SEO. Look at the SEO filling in big names. 
Yeah, so that's, that, that's real impressive. Iconic. That film festival is but yeah. always well, so Yeah, top so tier. Great. We all know who that is, but for maybe people that <laughs> don't know who that is, maybe maybe go into uh, her credentials. Well, she's a well, she's an all-around artist. She started out as just like a as a performance artist more than anything, but um a couple I for, I'm not sure exactly who it was, but I know that um her, she eventually was more considered more of a musician. She was um, Lou Reed's late wife. She didn't know who the Velvet Underground was, though, when she met him, which I think is fascinating. There's a lot of different festi- festivities uh, taking place this spring. One of them, one of the most famous, is Number Fest, uh, which will be taking place April 20th through 21st, and the headliners include Marshmallow and Lil Uzi Vert. Really? Hmm. It's true. Pretty decent names. They, they get big names there, so get out of town. <laughs> that weekend. No, actually, there's something <laughs> happening at the Dairy Barn, I think, that same weekend, uh, a Motown review uh, that Saturday. So something for the young and the old. Hmm. Yeah. You don't want to be outside in a field full of <laughs> college-aged students. On 420. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. I didn't even make that yeah, connection. It's going it to be... 420. <laughs> it's going to be quite yeah, a time. Walking That's up funny. and down West Union. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Um, but if you're uh, looking for a different type of entertainment than than that, um, you should go you should check out the 24th annual Seabury Quinn Junior Playwrights Festival, which takes place April 19th through 21st and April 25th through 28th, and that um, celebrates the work of all the MFA playwrights at Ohio University. And there'll be three different plays um, uh, pre- presented in their in progress plays and their semi staged readings, really, and they'll be in. There'll be a rotating repertoire those those two weekends, but so that's another cool thing to do. Just celebrating Tisha's birthday at the theater. There you go, as you should. Spring is always just a great time in Athens. There's always like so many things going on. Yeah, every like in weekend, April it's like every, jam-packed. Oh. There's like five things that you could go to. Yeah, for sure. Same weekend. And uh, then the 2018 Nelsonville Music Festival, which is taking place May 31st through June 3rd. Yes! And um, that's always my biggest project of the year. They got some good <laughs> names this, this year. You get worked to the bone. Uh, during... It's fun, though. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm excited. Oh, yeah, the big totally. Name. Yeah, the, I mean, their headliner is George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic. Make my funk the people. <laughs> I to give up. <laughs> sorry. And then they also have, I mean, the Decemberist will be another kind of biggish name. Name. I, mm-hmm. they're, they're good. And uh, Annie DeFranco. That's another, mm-hmm. yes, that's, that's a, a good name. one. Big that's name. a good one. Twain from last year, I have a real soft spot for. Just personally, I like Twain a bunch, singer songwriter okay. type. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I'll have lots of preview uh, coverage starting like in mid April, maybe a little bit earlier. So lots of interviews and all that on uh, backslash culture. And if you want to know what the atmosphere is like, you can go see coverage from last year uh, on video at the W-O-U-B PBS YouTube channel. Oh my gosh! It's right on the home page. There is a playlist for the 2017 Nelsonville Music Festival as well as the Gladden House sessions. I'm excited. (laughs) Yeah, so lots of good stuff coming. That's all I got for today. Sounds like you're going to be very busy. Very busy. Things are picking up. All right, well, Allison plays you out. All right, yeah. Good scene, Thanks for dropping by. Yeah, sure thing. And that's WUB.org backslash culture. See you down the railroad. Yeah, see you later.
457 SEO is produced in the WAB Telemix studio. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. Aaron Payne is our editor. And Nathan McGuire created the music. You'll find this recording at hashtag 457SEO on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, NPR One, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and our website, web.org. Follow WAB News on Facebook and Twitter. And thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. I'm Atish Baidya. I'm Susan Tevin. I'm Allison Hunter. I'm Aaron Payne. Thanks. Bye. Bye. There's Adam. Rick O'Neill.